Hey, good morning, all of life. Good to see you. Good to be seen. We're in, uh, we're in Matthew's gospel, chapter six, uh, just getting into chapter six this morning. We're right in the middle, kind of smack dab in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a great teaching uh, element of Jesus's ministry has formed the church, the Sermon on the Mount in particular, for thousands of years, has really taught us the right side up way of God's kingdom. And so his people have been following him and trying to embody this teaching, empowered and animated by his spirit within us for several thousand years. And we're no different in 2021 in Post Falls this morning. So the way that this teaching will kind of uh, go, we're, we're talking about giving. We're talking about generosity, almsgiving. We're in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, page 761 in the Black Bibles around the room. The way that this teaching will go this morning, it'll probably start to settle in a little bit heavy. Uh, and then start to gain some steam, uh, just gospel motivation. The good news is, is coming. So don't just build walls and keep them up. I would ask even if you're able to not build walls at all, but to try to hear this morning what Jesus says to his church, what his spirit says to his church with some fresh ears and maybe a fresh mindset and perspective about what it looks like, what it means to to give. So we're gonna jump right into the text and we're going to read, but we're actually gonna start in Matthew chapter five in the very last verse, uh, verse 48. It's this kind of perplexing verse where he says, you therefore must be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. That trips us up in a big way. I talked about this last week, if you want some more clarity on the teaching, but um, that word perfect there is the Greek word teleos, and it means full maturity, the sense of uh, being completely grown up, the fullness of who you are created to be. That word perfect can equally describes, describe God's ultimate maturity, his ultimate perfection. And it can also describe our fullness. You grow up into the fullness of adulthood, the fullness of manhood or womanhood. So simultaneously, he can say, you therefore be grown up as the father is the complete picture of what it is to be grown up. It's a word that means mature. You therefore must be mature as your heavenly father is, capital M, mature. Then he says in chapter six, verse one, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees will reward you. Who sees what you do in secret will reward you. This is the word of God. Father, speak to us this morning. Our willingness to love our enemies, which is where that section, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. It comes on the heels of that. Our willingness to love our enemies is a sign of our maturity and discipleship. Our willingness to protect and guard our own hearts against anger, against lust, against adultery, everywhere that Jesus has been thus far in Matthew chapter five, these are all signposts of growing maturity. In this section here, um, this, 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 these first three kind of movements in Matthew chapter six um, 
giving, the Lord's prayer, and then fasting, these are also signposts of what it looks like to grow in maturity as disciples. Our, our Father loves to see his people, his children, grow. As an ideal father or mother loves to see their children develop and grow and get wins, so too our Father celebrates it. He sees all of it. We typically think that we're alone when we're alone, but we're not. He sees us in every moment. He searches not even just what we're doing on the outside, but the thoughts and intentions of the heart, Hebrews says. He sees it all, and he just, he leans his heart in the direction of wanting to reward his children. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, functions as an introduction to this section an introduction to these core practices. And so Jesus starts with this curious word, beware, okay? So it puts us on some guard. It perks us up a little bit. Our, our, our hearing is tuned. Our eyesight is tuned. What's coming next? He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. All of whether it's giving or whether it's praying out loud or whether it is fasting, all of these core practices are visible practices. They're, they're physical practices. They're opportunities for us to be noticed, which can make them spiritually precarious. They can make them a bit, that can make them a bit spiritually dangerous even because we can do them and manipulate them in order to be seen by others and thereby get the praise of other people, glory from other people. A theologian and a pastor in the Midwest, a guy named Sky Jatani, he writes this. He says, we all want our lives to matter, but in our celebrity-saturated culture, we've come to believe that our lives only matter if they are noticed. This deep longing to matter by being seen, it's what fuels social media. We want someone, anyone, to take notice, to care about us, to see us, and to like us. And so we go online to find a witness for our life. But what we're really searching for on Facebook or Instagram, Twitter, is for someone to tell us, you matter. Your life counts. Does that resonate with you a bit? Just want, just the desire to matter, the desire for your life to count, the desire for affirmation. Here's where we're going this morning. I want to give you a roadmap. They're going to be up on the screen. Don't worry about writing them down. I just want to give you the direction of where we're headed this morning. We have a dilemma when it comes to giving generously to the poor, in particular, our motives. We have a dilemma. Our motives can sometimes work against us. Uh, and then point two, generosity is a basic expectation for followers of Jesus. This is like the big idea of the whole message. Generosity is a basic baseline expectation for what it means to apprentice ourselves, follow Jesus of Nazareth. Simple giving do's and don'ts. We'll evaluate our generosity just as people, family units to the poor. And then we're going to ask this, try to answer, at least in part, this question, what are the rewards that the Father is speaking of here? Because it feels so gray. It feels, uh, it, it, it doesn't feel defined with definite edges and colors. It feels very uh, ethereal and just kind of out there and vague. So what are the rewards that our Father gives? And then we'll create some space for some Q&R. So point number one, we have a dilemma when it comes to showing our generosity to the poor, when it comes to showing generosity to the poor. And our dilemma is our motives. Look at verse one again. Beware, okay? 
That's saying something could be off in us. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people, purpose clause, in order to be seen by them. So that's speaking of motive, inner motive. For then, he says, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. And then Jesus will go on to say, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues or the, the uh, we could say even the churches and the streets, the public square, that they may be praised by others. Have you ever given to, don't raise your hand, but have you ever given to a GoFundMe account? You've seen GoFundMe accounts online. They ask this interesting question on GoFundMe accounts. They, they ask if you want to put your name there or if you want to be noticed as anonymous. You want to be um, just, just recorded in the account as giving anonymously. Um, I wonder, uh, it, like, it, I've done it. I've put my name there. There's like a piece of it that feels good. And I wonder, I've, wondering this question, even just as I'm preparing this week, could it be that obedience to Jesus, even in like the small nooks and crannies of my life, looks like even on GoFundMe, just staying anonymous, just letting that be between the Lord and I. Being noticed for a generous way of life is intoxicating. Being noticed, being seen, being affirmed for our generosity can be really intoxicating. Martin Luther often insisted that our righteousness, our acts of righteousness, our good works can actually be more dangerous than our sin. He said for righteousness, um, Dale Bruner, a commentator we've been leaning on, kind of sums up Luther's sentiment by saying this, the righteousness that we do can serve the most self-centered of all human desires, self-glorification. But secretive generosity is an adventure. Secretive generosity, giving what we have can be an adventure. We don't know what is going to happen. There can be some, uh, we, we don't know the outcome. We don't know how it'll provide, how it'll be received. We don't, we, we, we're kind of withholding that praise element on a human level from ourselves. And so we do have some need. We're wondering like how the Lord will um, provide for us. And so even in the wondering of how the Lord will provide for us, there can be some fear in us, some anxiousness in us. There can be anticipation and just kind of an eagerness to see how it all shakes out. Those are the building blocks of adventure. You don't know what is coming and there's a sense of anxiety or excitement within you. Secretive giving can be an adventure. So secretive generosity, it actually keeps the practice in play of giving ourselves away, but it functionally moves you and I to entrust ourselves to the careful hand of our father who sees what we do in secret, according to Jesus. Secret giving secret generosity, it builds our faith in him. Um, the, the writer to the Hebrews in our New Testament, near the end of our New Testament in Hebrews 11, chapter six, or uh, chapter 11, verse six says that, um, and without faith, it is, it is impossible to please God because one must believe that he exists in the first place and that he, quote, rewards those who earnestly seek him. There's that reward language again. And so we recognize, if you're like me, you recognize like, okay, I, I'm, I'm in, but I'm still kind of out. Like I'm, I'm, there's a wrestle going on in me. And so I recognize that my motives as well are, they're, they're up and down, they're kind of all over the place. And so the way for us when our motives aren't right within, it's not to pull back from the good that we are to do or the good that we would like to do. 
It's not to pull back. It's not to just say, well, I got to pull back until everything shakes out, until my motives are totally pure, and then I'll move forward. Because if you're anything like me, your, your motives will never be 100% blue. Like there's always some green greed in there, right? It's always in play in some way. But the answer is also not to change the scope or the volume of what we are to do, like to, uh, to, to just um, to, to overperform in the giving as if that might put our motives right. We're still to do good in the way that we want to do good. But I think what Jesus is really aiming at in this text is that we're to do so for an audience of one. We're to recognize, like, what are we after in the act of giving? We're to redirect our desires to be no, to, from away from being desire, uh, noticed by others to being noticed and seen and eventually either in the here and now or later or both be rewarded by God. And so giving to the needy, giving to the poor, providing for people who have needs around us is discipleship 101 for the church. We're Jesus followers, not people followers, which means we follow the Lord Jesus and what he calls us to do. And so my second point this morning, which is really the big idea of this text, generosity to the poor is a basic expectation of what it means to follow Jesus of Nazareth. Lives overflowing with generosity is the basic expectation of what it means to follow Jesus of Nazareth. You'll see in verse 2, 3, and 4 here, he'll say things like, thus when you give to the needy. He'll say again, but when you give to the needy. He'll say again, so that you're giving. There's implication here. He's just under, he's, he's working um, from a, a point of understanding here that people are leaning in the direction of providing something called alms, to the people around us. Now, this is kind of an old-fashioned word. Uh, we hear it in some more like high church circles, or maybe you'll hear it in Islam or in Judaism, almsgiving. This word alms, the English word alms, it comes from Greek and Latin words that sound very much the same, but the basic, the basic idea of this word is it's an act that brings with it compassion or mercy or charity. And so alms are contributions of money, food, or goods specifically given to help the poor. Here's what we need to understand as Jesus is teaching us, is we're positioning ourselves in the place of learning, in the place of being influenced by him, that this teaching is not coming from a teacher who has failed to live his own message. This teaching is not coming from a hypocrite. This teaching is, condemns, actually, the hypocritical life. Jesus' life was not theater. It was not a performance. Jesus of Nazareth poured his life out on behalf of a world estranged from our creator. His life poured out brings us life. In him was light, and his life was the light of men. His touch, his prayer brought healing. His teaching, whether then in person on the Sermon on the Mount or now as we're reading it off the pages of our English Bibles, brings redirection, brings a new ethic, brings a new way of life. His death in 30 or 33 AD brings reconciliation. His dependence upon our Father, His Father, our Father, His dependence upon the Father moved Jesus to give Himself away generously, to give Himself away 
Paul would write to the Ephesians, he gave himself up for us. And so our, as followers of Jesus, our act, our move is to follow his pattern, is to follow in his steps. As the apostle John said, to walk as he walked, to live into that reality. Look at the pattern. Jesus starts, his people follow. So what I'm going to do is I'm gonna put up a familiar text of scripture out of Philippians known as the Christ hymn. And we're gonna look at what Jesus did. And then from there, we're going to look at the life pattern of the apostles when it comes to generosity. These first century face-to-face disciples of Jesus. And then we're going to kind of just do a real quick survey of a few early church fathers in the 300s and then um, John Calvin and in, this, in the 1500s and then us today. Jesus starts the pattern and the people of God follow it. Philippians 2, 5 verses uh, 2, 5 uh, through 11. He writes, um, have this mind, he's writing this to a church, have this mind, what mind? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The mind is the mind of Christ, the mindset of Jesus Christ, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he, though he was God, though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God, speaking of the Father, a thing to be grasped. He's not just out looking for attention. He's not just out looking for glory. He's not seeking glory for himself. He's seeking glory for his father. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what did he do? He emptied himself. He poured himself out in the, in, in the, the act of service by taking the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. And being found, being discovered, being seen and known as a human. What did he do all the way at the end? He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, even the worst kind, even from the cross where we get our word excruciating. He would go that far. Therefore, God, Father, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. What can that be but reward? Father is rewarding the Son. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of who? To the glory of God our Father. Now look at the pattern of the apostles. Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 has a, has a, a very potent description of their lifestyle, especially when it comes to generosity. And all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions. Don't just let this glance off your brain. Look at what they were doing. They were selling their things and and distributing what they got, the proceeds, to all as any had need. This is a radical act of generosity that I'm not sure my mind and heart are okay with. Just where it lands in my There was not a needy person among them, Acts chapter 4. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed and it was given away to any, to each, as any had need. Then in church history, a man named Basil of Caesarea. This one is a stinger. Uh, It, (laughs) I feel... I feel the weight of it when I read it, which is part of why I brought it here because I didn't want to feel it alone. The, the, <laughs> the bread in your cupboard belongs to the hungry man. 
The coat hanging in your closet belongs to the man who needs it. The shoes rotting in your closet belong to the man who has no shoes. The money which you put into the bank belongs to the poor. You do wrong to everyone you could help but fail to help. Feel that? Said the guilt was going to, like, the heavy was... John Chrysostom said something similar who lived around the same time. He said, not to enable the poor to share in our goods, to share is to steal from them and deprive them of life. The goods we possess are not ours, but theirs. John Calvin would affirm that the property of the church is the property of the poor. We at all of life believes, and this has just continued down through the centuries. We at All of Life believe similarly. One of our distinguishing values is joyful generosity. But when it's like, when I, when I look at the way All of Life spends compared to some of these church history examples, I'm like, whoa, we're not there. We're not there. A, a, a value may be we are joyfully generous, and I believe that we are. We do have benevolence as a line item in our budget. We do want to provide for you if you have needs. We want to help, whether you or people that you know or people in the community. We believe in using our funds to help those who struggle. We support open arms from our monthly budget. They're a a crisis pregnancy care um, center here. Uh, We, as Tyler was alluding to this morning, talking about a bit, we support numerous churches, church plants generously, one in Coeur d'Alene. Um, thousands of dollars. Uh, I think we've contributed something like $10,000 so far to our church plants just in the first four months of this year. Um, Could we do more? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think we should. I think we should. Not just pastor guy, staff, people, but like we as a church even thinking about the baby bottle boomerang just this um, this this fundraiser that we're doing to help open arms right now um, there's some baby bottles on the on the back table and the point is to just fill them with change or checks or cash whatever you want to do and it goes from mother's day to father's day and we bring them back and kind of celebrate and 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 uh and give that away to those who are helping young moms and dads who are finding themselves in crisis situations, unplanned pregnancies, and they have alternatives. And so Open Arms want to be, wants to be there to help to protect and provide life, and not just life, but life skills to help these mom and dads raise kids in ways that are responsible and good for their well-being and, and their outcome. And so I'm asking the question, why are we giving them coins when we can write checks? Let the Holy Spirit work there. Point three, simple giving do's and don'ts according to Jesus. According to Jesus, so don't, that last admonition, that last exhortation, don't let it fly. Let it create a hook. And we're going to move on in the text, but we're not going to move on from obedience. Jesus gives us some simple giving do's and don'ts. According to Jesus, there's a way to give alms, and then there's a way not to give alms. Jesus expertly aims at not only our giving activity, but he aims at what animates our giving activity. He aims at our hearts. Do you enjoy being noticed? Do you enjoy being recognized? I do. 
Do you enjoy being the expert at the table? Do you enjoy being leaned on? Do you enjoy being able to provide and to be generous? Do you enjoy being handy? Do you enjoy being beautiful? Do you enjoy being intelligent? Do you enjoy being wealthy? Do you enjoy being worthy? We hunger for glory. We hunger to be noticed. And so Jesus gives us a, I mean, he gives us a strong word. He said, when, he says, when you give, don't sound the trumpet. Don't blow the trumpet. Some commentators say that this was an actual practice, like in the temple courts, they would blow a trumpet or some sort of a horn, and then people would come in and form, form lines. And they weren't giving, like they weren't swiping a card, so everybody was on a level playing field. Like some are doing this, you know, and some are doing this, right? So people are seeing what is being given, and it's an opportunity to really be seen and to be puffed up or to be degraded and feel a sense of shame, even though you're acting in obedience, you're giving very little, and so you don't feel as good as those who give much. Some commentators disagree. There's a lot of like just murkiness about what the actual practice was, but regardless, the principle is this, don't toot your own horn when you give, when you provide for other people. That's what bad actors do. That's what hypocrites do, uh, Pharisees. It's the, it's the equivalent of performing for an audience. They may praise you. People around you may praise you. They probably will. And Jesus says, that's actually the extent of the reward. How to feel? You got the praise of people. It's gone so quickly, like a midnight snack, you know? Like cruise in, grab it, you take it in, and the satisfying effect only lasts so long. It's akin to that. Jesus is saying, man, if you're doing it to be seen by people, that's the extent of the reward. If they give you the, that's it. That's it. It's interesting here too that Jesus specifically mentions the synagogue, uh, the equivalent of our churches where people are gathering, Jews are gathering to worship. He also mentions the square, you know, and the streets. So um, people, there are, there are people who are um, spiritual or religious in nature who are giving to help the poor, but then there's also Bill and Melinda Gates, right? There's people who form foundations and give away billions and billions of dollars. The human heart loves to give. That's my point. The human heart loves to give. Why? Because humanity is created in the image of God, and God is an incredible giver. He just gives and gives and gives and gives and gives to his people, and we are created to image him. We're fallen, and so we deal with greed, but we also like to give. That's why giving, that's why generosity tickles the pleasure centers of our brains and makes us feel so good, because we are created after the image of our creator, right? Now, a few questions just to kind of walk us through um, evaluating our giving to the poor, our generosity. Um, how do we take stock of our own generosity? I want to just present a handful of questions to you. You can see a handful of them up on the screen. And so I just want you to, I want you to wrestle with them. I want you to write down answers, type them in your phone, whatever you have here. Are there opportunities for generosity right now that you are aware of? Has a letter come in the mail or a voicemail come across or a text message? Or is there a family down the street or has news of some need come to you? And you're kind of in that place of like a holding pattern around it. Are you aware of needs? And I think it says something. If we're completely unaware of the needs around us, that says like, man, I know there are needs, so why am I not seeing them? What does it look like to chase down some answers? Here's another question. Is charity a line item in your budget? 
does it reflect anywhere on your online banking? Like if a good friend were to look at your bank account, would they see a generous life? When presented with opportunities to give, what's your internal language? What's your self-talk like? Yeah, not this time, not this month. Man, that sounds like a really good opportunity. I'll talk to my spouse. I'm gonna look at my, just kind of the numbers. And I'm gonna find out where we're at. I like that. Like, what's your, what's your internal language like? Well, let me pray about it. You know, <laughs> not gonna come back around to that question. Like, what, what is it? What's your internal language? Now, here's another question that kind of drives it a little more nuanced. What's your heart response like? So what do you feel? when you have opportunity to give? What's going on internally? Like, are you shying away? Are you pausing and reflecting? Are you saying no way? Is there a kind of eagerness? What's the heart response? What are you feeling when presented an opportunity to give? In what ways is your generosity to the poor, to the kingdom of God motivated as an act of worship? So Oftentimes, um, I, can, um, I, can, I can respond to a need without actually connecting it to worship. Like, thank you, Lord, for what you've given me, and then give it. It just is more like horizontal transactions as opposed to like m- getting my mind into that intentional space of thank you for providing so that I can be a blessing. Thank you for blessing me so that I can be a blessing. And moving it into this heart posture of worship is delight present in that act. Or is it begrudging? You connect with God in a particular way. Here's here's a question that I think all of us may answer yes to. Are you more likely to give when others will see you? Like when there's some sort of social pressure. Um, recently, we had a, there was a fundraiser for our kids' school, and they did one of these paddle auctions. It looks like a ping pong paddle, basically, and it has a number on it, and everybody in the room has one assigned to them. And then the auctioneer kind of, you know, he goes through all of his, you know, spiel, and then he asks, you know, who wants to give 500 or 200 or 50 or 25 or whatever, and you raise the panel. The, the paddle for whatever you want. Well, um, I had had a, there were probably 200 people in the room. It was at the Coeur d'Alene Resort. It was nice. We're looking over the water. You know, it didn't cost us anything to show up. It was a fundraiser for the kids' school. And, and um, the auctioneer I actually went to high school with, I played basketball with him on our high school team. We know each other pretty well. And, uh, and so we were talking, he and his wife and my wife, we were chatting it up beforehand, like just catching up. It had been a while since we'd seen each other. And, and this paddle auction was kind of going on. It was coming into like the, the smaller numbers, like the my budget numbers. And, uh, and you know, I, I raised the paddle and I remember it, it, it felt simultaneously bad and good. I was, my motives were mixed in the moment. I raised the paddle and he actually said my name when he saw me in the back. It wasn't just, you know, 50 bucks or whatever. It was like, and Jared Lida has one in the back. And I was like, oh, oh. You know, there, there was the simultaneous like push and pull. It felt good, but it felt wrong. And I, it just, I recognized at that table that the people around us were in a wealthier tax bracket than us because they were raising theirs like way before we were even ready to. And so I felt a kind of social pressure even around the table to contribute. And so I recognized that I was more likely to give. I didn't come in with like a number in my head that night. I just, there was compulsion in me to give in that moment. And I recognize that I'm completely susceptible to this. Com- 
Jesus says, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. We can get weird here around this text. We can play all sorts of legalistic games, you know, things like, does it mean that we always give cash? Does it mean that we don't give as a community because other people might see what we're giving? Principle is to seek the reward of praise from our Father, our pleased Father, not seek the reward of praise from people. Notice Jesus gives the motive in verse one. Beware. So be on guard. He's not saying, he doesn't say don't. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. And he gives a purpose clause. What's the purpose clause? In order to be seen by them. Don't practice it. Don't do it in order with that as your motivation. So the principle for us is not to just keep it fully secret and and just get totally weird about it. But the principle for us is to continually check our heart motives so that we begin to live lives of such generosity that it becomes so frequent that our left hand doesn't even know what our right hand is doing because they're just moving in generosity to the people around us. Here's my last point. What are the rewards that our father gives us? We're going to take a few weeks to actually build this out. So I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you some understanding an idea of the reward that God is speaking of here, that, that Jesus is speaking of here, but it's going to come again. There's, we're going to fill out the nuance next week and then the following week again. What are the rewards that our Father gives us? I think right out of the gate. So most theologians will say when it comes to rewards, what, what, what is most often in view and most commonly in view around this idea of New Testament rewards is eternal life that our primary reward is life and communion with God forever. That's the primary reward. We get to live with him under his blessing forever. So the New Testament is not real particular about spelling out all of the specifics of what, am I going to get more than them? Am I going to have a nice house, a little house on a river, on a lake, on the ocean? Like what, I don't, what is it going to look like in the new creation? The Bible's not at all concerned in answering those questions. The point, the reward, is that we get God himself. We get to be with the one who has created us, and there's no unbroken fellowship between us and him. There's no unbroken fellowship between us and one another. And there are some rewards that we will begin to experience in this life as well. And I want to just point a couple of those out. Number one, growing faith in him. That's one of our rewards, is growing faith in in the Father who provides for us continually. And by nature, it also means that we will have a diminishing faith dependence in ourselves, our own devices, our own planning, and diminishing faith in other people too. I don't think, and many commentators would say the same, that this text, when it comes to reward here, it's not talking about earned wages. So this relationship that we have with God is not a transactional, predictable system of investing. Like um, giving to your church or giving to the poor is not like investing in a Roth IRA where you put 100 in and get 107 back. It's not like that. That's not what's actually happening here. It's actually better than that. But I will warn you, you've got to be, we have to be okay with mystery. Sometimes our kids, um, we tell our kids in advance, we've got a, a, one of our children has a birthday coming up this week and we will just like, we'll just be cruel in the best possible way. 
we'll just say, man, we've got you some really cool stuff for your birthday. You are going to love it. And then they start to squirrel and they start to try to like just get it out of us and they squirm and they come back time and time and time and time again. And so they beg and we love that. And if you just say, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. It's going to be better than you expect here. Now, if we're good parents, trustworthy, generous, not truly cruel in any way, how much more good is our Father to us? Actually, the scriptures give some really clear insight to his heart toward you and I. Ephesians chapter 2 is a wonderful section um, telling us the heart of God towards his people. Ephesians chapter 2 starts out by saying, and you're dead in your trespasses. So, like, done nothing to earn the grace of God. Done nothing to earn the generosity of God. What we've actually earned is death. The wages, the due reward for our sin is death. It's to be cut off from life with God. And it takes this turn in verse 4 where it says, but God being what? Rich in what? Mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. What did you do to earn that love? Anywhere, you're right. Zip. Anywhere in that picture, there's no merit because of the great love within him that originates in him, that's founded in him. With his great love, he loved us even when, when we were dead in our trespasses, foolish, jokes, rebels, God haters, insolent, hating one another and hating ourselves even. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did he do? He made us, who made it? Who did it? He made us alive together with Christ. And then there's this, this, this phrase, by grace, by, by undeserved merit, you have been saved. Saved from the wages that our sin deserves. We weren't just saved in mercy, but we were also given something, grace. And so he raised us up with Christ. We are new people. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Wait a second, I'm sitting in my chair at Post Falls. No, it's not what he means. He means positionally we are seated with Christ. What this means is your and my future is incredibly bright. We do not have to fear hell. We do not have to fear being cut off. We do not have to fear it not being good as we want it to be when we're with him. We do not have to be fearers of our future because he has positionally guaranteed, though we're complete idiots, our future is incredibly bright. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. And why has he done it? What does he plan to do? Verse seven, here's my whole point. I'm just taking a long time to get there. What does he want to do? What's his heart? What's his intent towards us in the new creation? What's his intent towards us in eternal life? So that in the coming ages, not years, months, minutes, decades, epochs, millennia, eternity, where there is no time. So that in the coming ages, what does he want to do for us? He wants to show us the immeasurable, unable to be measured riches of his unmerited favor. He just wants to pour it and pour it and pour it and pour it upon his people in kindness, all motivated by a kind heart. As we love 
and worship and are joined to our Savior, Christ Jesus. Sky Jatani, this is the quote that I began reading, but I'm going to take it a little bit further. He says, we all want our lives to matter, but in our celebrity-saturated culture, we've come to believe that our, our lives only matter if they're noticed. This deep longing to matter by being seen, it's what fuels social media. So we want someone, anyone to take notice, to, t- to care about us, to see us, to like us. We go online to find a witness for our life, but what we're really searching for on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter is for someone to tell us, you, you matter, your life counts. In this selfie culture, we must hear Jesus's reminder that what is done in secret is what matters most. Real intimacy, whether with another person or God, requires privacy and shuns publicity. The more we develop this intimacy with God, the less we will strive for the attention and the affirmation of other people, including strangers via social media. We will also discover a secret that eludes so many our lives do matter. Not because somebody has noticed our post and liked it, but because God is always with us, noticing every moment of our lives, the secret moments of our lives, the secret activity of our lives. The psalmist foreshadowing Sky's words in 2020, or whenever he wrote them, wrote this, Psalm 139, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You're aware of all of my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. You might even say before a penny is in the hand or a dollar is in the hand, he knows all about it. Your father sees the righteousness that you do in secret, and he has a plan. In the coming ages, he will show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Our secret giving opens us up to adventure. Our lifestyle of generosity opens us up to adventure. The adventure of knowing the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in profound new ways. Depending upon Him in ways that feel scary and precarious for us now. But as we move in obedience, He provides for His people and says that He sees it, He counts it, and He will affirm and praise His people for the good that they did as they follow his son. The father will say to us, well done, good and faithful servants. How powerful is it that he would be willing to affirm and to praise you and I for our obedience, for our love. He's put in our hearts. He's animated us. He's motivated us. This is his heart toward us. There's no furrowed brow. He loves his people. He's transforming his people. Pray with me. Father, animate this teaching, the teaching of Jesus. I took 40 minutes to say what Jesus did in four sentences. Animate this in our lives. Move us as a church, thinking community of people, big budget, that, that, that central aspect animate us to live generously toward people, to take risks entrusting ourselves to you, but also as individuals animate us, move us toward generous living 
even where we feel like, man, we don't have much. We're struggling just to make it. Would you help to animate a generous life in all of us, no matter where we are, no matter our station or stage of life? We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Church fam, we have been doing, if you're new with us, we do something called Q&R, question and response. So it's an opportunity for the church, for you, whoever's here, to, to interact with um, some of this teaching. I recognize that um, there are times when you ask really good questions and I have a sense where I feel a bit on the spot or I am on the spot and I just don't have the tools or the language in the moment. And so if I attempt to answer some of these questions, there are times when I can very much outpunt my coverage. So if I have uh, if I have or do or today or in the past any kind of harm or just create more questions in you than, uh, than, than I do provide answers or clarity for you, um, come and, and let me know and, and let's, let's work some of that out, particularly if I say something that troubles you. Do we have any this morning? We got two? Let them fly. I'm not seeing anything here. Should a Christian give to political causes? This sounds like a setup. Um, why not? If you, be- if you believe in them, if you believe that they're faithful to the cause of Christ, why not? Why not? Do not overlook the needy. Do not overlook your local church. Give in all of the ways you want to all of the causes that you believe in. But there are some fundamental areas that need your attention first. God calls them first fruits. And he means some of this almsgiving, and he does also mean giving to help expand and support his kingdom. So let those be priority. And then if you want to give to political causes all day long, do it. Next one. Is it possible that your improper desire to be generous is so deeply rooted that you aren't aware of it? So how do you dig through this? Oh, that is a really perceptive question. Uh, yeah, why, why not? There, there, are, there are a million desires that are so deeply rooted in me that I'm just unaware of them. Uh, I, don't see, I, don't, I don't see that this category would be outside of that in any way. Um, if so, how do you dig through this? Um, the psalmist gives us some direction. I don't mean to give you a Christian pat answer, but I'm going to give you a Christian pat answer. Search me, Lord, and know my heart. See if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Like it starts with prayerful dependence, asking the spirit of God to help reveal in you what you cannot see within yourself. I don't mean to say like prayer is the answer to all of the, all of the things, but I do mean to say that prayer is the answer to all of the things. He will um, show himself faithful. Now, if you, for whoever it is that's asking this question right now, it's possible you're already cluing into it. So take it a little further. Write it down in a way that you can come back to it. Um, if, you're, if you're so, uh, uh, I don't even think it's really courageous, just open. Um, maybe there are a few trusted people that you could, that you could just tell your story a bit for. And they're not the yes kind of people. They're the kind of people who will push in on you and like kind of look for some root um, rather than, oh, you're fine. Oh, that's, you know, 
Like, look for some of those people that will tell you the truth, that will help you to discover. Uh, counseling can help with this. There's methods of, even Glenn, you were teaching us this last week on, on the, the arrow method of the, asking these this series of questions where you, you ask a question like that. Is it possible that you're in proper desire? If so, how do I, how do I dig through this? Uh, I think it might be improperly rooted. Why? Well, because I was forced to give by my parents. Okay. Why? And what was that all about? What did that, what did that do to you? Okay. I felt this way. Okay. Why did you feel that? And just ask these questions that, that chase the root, that try to get at what's underneath the surface there. I think that would be a, a helpful way. And, and a good friend, you could even just ask a friend, to, like, help me. Just keep asking me why. It's going to be, I'm going to feel super annoyed at you. We try not to punch you about three questions in, but ask me why. I'm going to give you a thing and then ask me why. What a great exercise. Um, it's helpful. Okay, we're going to end there. Uh, Father, we, um, we, we want to be a generous people, so lead us in that way. As we take communion, um, bless your people this morning with a sense of who you are, with a sense of your goodness. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your church. We thank you for your ways. In Jesus' name, amen.